Welcome to the 35th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. It's your producer, Katie, here, and this episode has been edited to reflect our new name. If you're new to the Animal Riot community, welcome, and you can find out more about us at AnimalRiotPress.com. Now on to the episode with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and today's guest, the co-host of Fiction Nonfiction Podcast, Whitney Terrell and Vivi Ganeshanathan. Brian Birnbaum. I'm here today with the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast crew, hosted by Whitney Terrell and Vivi Ganeshanathan. Fiction Nonfiction interprets current events through the lens of literature and features conversations with writers of all stripes, from novelists and poets to journalists and essayists. Vivi, who's better known as Sugi, is the author of, among much else, the novel Love Marriage, which came out with Random House in 2008, and Whitney Terrell better known as Wit, is the author of three novels, The Huntsman, The King of Kings County, and The Good Lieutenant. Okay, so on our rakish little podcast, we do what's called Today's Brand of Fuckery, and today's, I think I want to, you know, something that struck me, which is extremely picayune, but, you know, I'm a, I'm just a, you know, I'm a little imp. I want to start with bringing up titles that start with article and adjective, the good, which wit you have with uh, the good lieutenant. And it's become so in vogue and its provenance intrigues me to the point where I'm just like, where, like, where is this coming from? Like, this is, and then we can talk about this when we bring up, you know, talking about your work. Or now it's up to you. <laughs> what are some other books that uh, that are named that are like? There's that like way? there's like the Good Doctor and the Good Place and like oh and the Good Place it, it, yeah it's all should. over the place like seriously place. I will say that I did title that book back in I started writing it in 2006. I'm oh, okay, so you're you're in, over the Good Place at least. Yeah, you're 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 an OG of the article adjective thing going on here. Okay, I love it. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll come back to that later. But I'm just apparently yeah it was uh. It was one Maybe of those. Maybe I started all of that. Although, <laughs> yeah, no, take credit for it until 2016. So I don't know if I can really take credit for it. Yeah, either take credit for it, or if it's some like collective conscious mind meld and like you know everything is one sort of thing, and we'll leave it at some Buddhist thing like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's start with how you do your podcast and what you're trying to do on your podcast, which is under the banner or sigil of LitHub, which is really cool. I actually, I just published an essay there a few months ago, something related to Catch-22. I really love, uh, I love their, I love their site. I love what they do over there, but. um, Well, I remember seeing that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, here we are. We're full circle. Yeah. So the tagline is pretty much, you start your episodes talking about how pretty much everything on the news has been covered more or less within the realm of literature. So I guess, uh, a starting point for me is kind of like for for the listeners unfamiliar with your podcast. Is this a jumping off point for every episode, or is it like a loose framework that guides? Or and you know, in general, you know, what are you guys trying to do? I'm leaving I, space for Sugi to go first here because <laughs> okay. I want to see what she has to say. <laughs> well, yeah. um, I was going to say Whitney is our our origin story is kind of a bit unusual. I think so. Whitney and I met at a memorial service for our former teacher, James McPherson, who we were both, we were students of, of Jim's at different times in our lives, but we have read a lot of the same things. And we, you know, after the memorial went and had dinner with a few other writers and I think had a good conversation and realized we were both former journalists. And I think we both felt like we 
you know, often we would be talking to our writer friends and looking at the headlines and, you know, thinking, oh, this reminds me of that novel in which that situation is covered or, oh, that reminds me of this craft problem that I'm having where I was thinking about point of view and how it relates to political power in this context. And so it was sort of, it is, it, it started out as sort of the jumping off point for every episode. And, and our first episode was about when it, we started in the fall of 20s. 17 is that right yeah. and our first episode was about sort of took as its jumping off point colin kaepernick's anthem protest him taking oh yeah yeah and and we had Britt bennett and matt gallagher on and Britt bennett had written the mothers in which jurors tied to the military and also to football and matt had been a veteran and so we were able to sort of talk to them about how they thought the media was was writing about this and also how they had written about it. And so as the podcast has evolved, we have sometimes had episodes that are sort of quote unquote industry insider or emerging writer or just sort of tips for things like submitting or, you know, how to run a literary magazine. But those have been sort of unusual and and the sort of po- the politics and literature, the, inter- the intersection of literature and the news has been, I think, really are the flag that we're flying. And we're definitely a left-leaning podcast. And I think we don't we don't really hide that. But I think that we're also really interested in the the nitty-gritty of, you know, the, that intersection of politics and art, which is so interesting, especially right now. Yeah. Yeah. Wit, do you want to add something to that? No, I mean, that's it. I just, you know, when I was first thinking about doing a podcast, I, I, I just feel like First of all, writers aren't asked to talk about politics enough. And all the writers that I am friends with talk politics all the time, sort of off camera, you uh-huh. know, and but they don't get asked it at readings very much and they don't get asked specific political questions very often. And I thought that it would be cool. I like I'm a lot more interested to hear some poets and fiction writers talk about politics than I am to listen to, I don't know, some CNN guy. Right. And, and then there's also the depth of literature that all these things have been covered over time. And I feel like. Literature has, if you've read, you know, if you, you know, you can look at the 19th century or 20th century literature and you're always finding stuff that are parallels to today. Right. And that, but that information and that knowledge is available to a a tiny segment of the population because I don't think many people think that way about literature that it relates to today, but it does. And so, you know, I find it like infinitely interesting every week, every other week to get to try to put together a show like that and think, oh, what books are we going to talk about? You know, and how does it re? We had one. My favorite one is that we got to talk about. We we're talking about Facebook and the data breaches at Facebook, but we got to talk about Borges's story. I always get the title of this wrong. Is it the Universal Library, Sugi? Oh, it's I, the I've library read, of the library. The Library of Babylon. Yep, I've read. Yeah, I've read that one. That's yeah. Talking I, about that. I love that and, story as a way of thinking about data and the kind of, of data sets that fa- Facebook has and everyone. And to me, that was like, those are the kind of discoveries that I find that the podcast can do when it's at its best. Yeah. That's really interesting because, you know, the whole cliche passes prologue, you kind of like replace that with imagination as prologue in a lot of ways and kind of say like, see, you know, cause like that's, that's really what we're predicated on, you know, like the myths of, uh, of society and laws and culture and, and I think, yeah, you you guys really hit on to something there with, you know, how literature is. Yeah, are you guys familiar with Yuval Noah Harari? Uh, had, had we talked about this before off the air? No. He, he wrote Sapiens. I, I bring him up all the time. There's people I bring up on this podcast all the time. And I, I, I think at some point they think I'm going to stalk them or something. Yeah, he wrote Sapiens. He wrote Homo Deus. And he wrote 21 Questions for the 21st Century. And he starts off Sapiens talking about how 
what really differentiates humans from other species is not just intelligence, it's our ability to imagine and create fiction. And yeah, so I think what you guys are doing is just incredibly important because, you know, our whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you know, we have people that are not maybe not always predicting or speculating, but at just seeing the possibilities that are out there. So yeah, are, are there any specific episodes that come to mind for you guys that um I don't know, jump out at you whether whether it's, you know, cuz one thing I'm interested in is you you what you just mentioned how you want a lot more people to be talking about politics in the literary realm, but the first thing that comes to me is like that's scary. People like people can't even talk about politics at at Thanksgiving, you know what I mean? And you know, having some having people in my own family who have you know other political leanings like how have you guys coped with that and yeah i guess so a mix of what episodes have jumped out at you and really like dug into this theme of espousing politics and literature and and how have you dealt with kind of you know you guys are left leaning but that's not always your conversation i'm assuming you know with or or the person or the other conversant you know yeah oh the first thing we should say is that since people are listening to this to find the podcast you you have to there's slashes between the words so if you want to type it into your like a, a search bar on your podcast app you have to type in fiction forward slash non forward slash fiction okay um, cool yeah that, well that and- extra complication we have to thank our our awesome editor johnny diamond for <laughs> Wait, awesome. Wait, it's it's not forward slash. It's just slash <laughs> or whatever, whatever slash <laughs> yeah. it is. We and we, and let's made this observation. Let's repeat that at the end so we make sure. And also, uh, oh, Johnny Diamond's the one who edited edited my essay at Lit Hub. This is yeah, yeah that's crazy. Yeah, that's he's awesome. Really great. He's been yeah, he's awesome. Everything. And well, I anyways. also want to know just to to go back for a second. This the podcast idea was Whitney's idea, so I feel like it's important to say that too because like he sort of this not was anymore. his brainchild. This was his brainchild, and <laughs> he was like. We met, we met at this memorial service for our teacher. Would you like to do this with me? And it's been, it has been really, really interesting to do it every week and to kind of also to feel like I have like now, I don't know, access to this other person's incredible brain where I, it's like I've read twice as much as before because now I can just ask Wait what he thinks about things, which is great. So it's like having an additional colleague, not on my campus, um, who I'm beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> in ongoing conversation with and, and I feel like it sort of improves like my writing and my teaching and it's also just like wicked fun yeah so episodes like when when you're talking about like people who you know we had Juliana Spar on we do up you know it's called fiction nonfiction, possibly because fiction slash non slash poetry slash non slash fiction I don't uh-huh. know maybe that wasn't catchy to someone but like we've had a bunch of poets on and, and Juliana Spar, who was on and talked about eco poetics was I mean she was she was amazing. I mean, she's also been an activist and just kind of, she was not afraid to talk about politics at all. And also to raise kind of really fundamental questions about, like, I think some of the questions that writers, many writers were asking themselves in the wake of kind of recent political events, what is the point of writing? And even to offer, you know, kind of lightning rod, controversial, I think, you know, we'd all like to think there's a point. And she yeah, offered that's a big really, question. <laughs> right. And so, you know, that was an episode where I was like, all right, Juliana's going to go there. Great. And, you know, I, I do think we're, we're quite left leading. I at least am so left leading. I might as well fall over in that direction. So I, <laughs> I do think like many of our guests come on probably knowing that. And that doesn't mean that there isn't some nuance in there. But we do have... I think we're able, as a result, actually, to have conversations about nuances of left politics. And we also offer... I think in that same spirit, a lot of critique of left politics. We are often, you know, critical of the Democratic Party or, or whatever. So I think we've been fortunate to have a lot of guests who are not afraid to 
talk politics. Yeah, we got to talk about the whole entire Democratic nominee field with George and Paula Saunders at a at a book festival that we recorded live. Wow, that was fun. Wow, we did uh, one recently that I liked. We did one about. Native American writers that, that I think was was really interesting with, with Brandon Hobson and Rihanna Rihanna Yazi, who is the yes. first playwright to be on the podcast. And she she runs the new native theater here in Minneapolis. That one was really cool. And, and yeah, it was awesome to have Brandon on as well. Uh huh. Have you guys ever had someone on who is kind of do we have kind, conservative guests? We don't, yes, really. We have not. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's a the really interesting uncle is not in, has not been invited. I don't know <laughs> how that would work. Yeah, well, I can tell you I have I want to feel like I, I'm a, a professor emeritus of discourse with with that side because I have close family members who who have voted the other way. And so I'm I'm very interested in 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 kind of like how we do integrate that into literature, because, you know, what is the point of writing is a really big question. And it's like. Does it ever cross into your podcast about how to reach across the aisle? That's interesting. I mean, I don't I don't know, Sugi, what do you think? I don't know that I'm I'm probably related to some people who didn't vote period, but I don't know that I'm related to anyone who voted for Trump. You're lucky. I <laughs> think I am actually. I think that but I, I mean, I do wonder, right? I think questions of who is the audience, those come up all the time and in all sorts of contexts. Like there's reaching across the aisle. There's re- reaching across across national boundaries. Uh-huh. There's reaching across racial boundaries, gender boundaries. So we, you know, we've talked to people about what they think is appropriation and why and how to avoid that. We have had a couple of writers on who have been sort of, you know, journalists who maybe are not going to, yeah, who are not going to identify their politics or people who you know, have participated in like, I don't know, sections of civil society, sections of American society that tend to be more conservative. Like we've had, we did the episode on the military during the time of Trump. And I think that sort of like that was a that was a conversation where the the way that Elliot's probably more conservative than you or I are. Elliot Ackerman, who was one of the guests, right? I think that he's more he was, I, I'm very, I'm even though the good lieutenant is a war novel, I'm a very anti-war writer, in particular the Iraq war. And I think that he's less critical of that war than I would be. Right. And so, I mean, yeah. And I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I guess I don't know enough about, I mean, Matt, Matt Gallagher, when he was on that first episode, like he provided really interesting history of the way that the anthem became popular in football games, which was stuff I didn't know and which did that sort of, that history gave me like a more critical view so i think also sometimes you get people who have well, come Gallagher, years and sorry he, he's a no, veteran no, no, so that in that in a way we're asking a veteran what do you think about people who are saying that this is offensive to veterans you know to offensive to the military to, to kneel at the football games and, I, and so i mean i think that i i, I think that i might not have had matt on if i thought that he had a completely idiotic take on it but i thought his take was was smart and i knew him and so i thought okay It'll be good to have that conversation with him. And I think that was like a good first lesson for me to sort of think, you know, I didn't know Matt and I'm glad to now be in touch with him. But also to sort of not assume what people's viewpoints are was really was kind of a good way to start, actually. Yeah. And that's kind of like the lesson that I've learned, not only spiritually, but yeah, in the political sphere, starting from a place of non-assumption is very difficult, especially when you have such a strong impulse. It's just a visceral reaction to someone like Trump, at least personally. Um, a lot of this is actually making me very excited to be on your podcast because I have I have so much to say about this. But yeah, yeah, let's 
let's keep it focused on you guys. And I want to bring up how you guys met because you guys mentioned James Allen McPherson, who you guys refer to as Jim McPherson, which kind of betrays the relationship you guys had with him. Uh, I don't know. In my opinion, maybe he's known as, as good old Jim, you know, he was known as good old Jim around, um, <laughs> around everyone. But, um, but yeah, I mean, just, just reading about him, even, even briefly, like I'm not that familiar with him, but he seems like a very impressive individual. I also have to mention that his birthday is between Katie and, and my birthdays. So I have a Virgo sort of uh, affinity or a special place in, in, in my heart for him right now. Yeah, but, um, I think what his his birthday just passed, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, happy birthday yeah. in that case. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Katie. They say happy birthday. <laughs> Katie says thanks. <laughs> I should say our producers. That's that's who I that's how I uh, refer to Katie because she's she's a the the uh, the most dynamo multitasker I've ever met in my ma- in my life. So so yeah. So you guys met at his memorial, but you ha- both had a relationship with him prior to that. That's what I'm I'm kind of gleaning. Yeah, he was. You know, we were both students in his classes. And, and wait, did you have him for workshop? I had him for workshop, and that was my main experience with him. How about you? Yeah, we we should say he taught at the University of Iowa at the Iowa Writers Workshop for many years and that was his that was where we had him as students and I had him for he had these great seminars that I also took that would involve a lot of sort of his like core ideas about race in America and and thought stuff that I refer to still all the time. So yeah, I had him both for workshop and but I I thought his seminars were actually better than his workshops just to be honest. I'm not sure that I went to his. I'm not sure if he was still teaching seminars when I was there. I uh, that's, what what were what were these? Uh, uh, can you can you give kind of the difference? Because obviously, workshop is you guys are you guys are handing something out and then we're going over it. We all know what that is, kind of you know. Or for those of you listening that have not been to an MFA or a workshop, you know, you basically hand in a piece of work to your classmates and the professor and. Then you come back and take take heat from it <laughs> in the worst case scenario, I guess. But yeah, so the seminars, what what went down in those? What, why, why were those so special? Well, I just, first of all, you know, I, I end up, I write a lot about race in American life. And one of the things that, and I'm white, and, and I had never thought about doing that at all until I was in Jim's classes. And, but, you know, he, he asked his students to call him Jim. And I always feel a little nervous, like, People are going to assume that, you know, it's it's a diminutive or something like that. But it really was how we said hi to him. Yeah, especially to someone who uh, won the MacArthur, which is pretty much like the genius grant, right? That's like that's pretty intimidating. I did never call him James. Did you? Yeah. Like, say, no. Hi, James. Yeah, it would just feel strange to me. Like I, think I, I might have said <laughs> sir the first time. <laughs> yeah. He was like, no. It's like, what do you call someone that that you've you've kind of like idolized for a long time? You know, I've ha- I've had that experience. It's very it's very strange. So you know, I I so he first of all, one thing that I thought was really important that he did was encourage American writers to write about this subject and and give them some context to write about it. So. You know, I think he he gave interesting lectures on the sort of philosophical differences between Ralph Ellison and Richard Wright and how their relationship went and how and how different they were in thinking about, like, how race affected an individual in American life, that 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 Wright was much more determinative and that Bigger Thomas, for instance, was predetermined to become the character that he was because of his station in life and because of his color and because he lived in a white supremacist state, whereas Ellison was more optimistic about the possibility of the individual to transcend circumstance, and that mm-hmm. shows in Invisible Man and in Ellison's essays. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was a student of Ellison. He was he was on Ellison's side of that argument, I think, but he was good at 
talking about both sides. I mean, I was there during the Rodney King era, so he talked a ton about that. He talked about Albion Tourguet and uh, an important uh, sort of lawyer who, who, had, who had been involved in the Plessy versus Ferguson case. He taught me Melville's Benito Serino. He taught me an essay by Ralph Ellison called The Black Mask of Humanity that's come up several times in the podcast that is Ellison talking about what it meant, how it affected American literature for white American writers to stop writing about race in the beginning of the 20th century. Mm. Stuff like that that's really that you just don't hear anywhere else and that he had spent a lifetime thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Sugi? What was what was your experience with him? Well, I think you're right to say that there's a lot about workshop and that makes me really sad that I was never in any of his seminars. But I think that some of the same stuff came into the workshop because he would give us he would give us readings and some of the things that he was, you know, he was famous for. He would sometimes play a little bit of Richard Pryor in class. A, a comedy album and uh, yeah, or, I, lo- I love that I love that and that he it was his was it him interviewing Richard what did he do this with you what the Richard Pryor thing I don't remember that tell me the story he he played I think it was was it I was either I think it was him interviewing Richard Pryor oh I know, um, I, know. I know nothing about that and I think if like actually if I mean now I want to google it right now which I'll resist doing but yeah I mean he was he would bring in things to workshop that other people might not have brought in and so you would sort of realize you know workshop is people sometimes think of workshop as this very square rigid format and it actually isn't the idea that your teacher might write you a letter or maybe not and but that isn't what you get out of workshop has so much to do with each individual instructor. So he talked to us about, you know, writing about our communities. And he would always say to me that I was fortunate to have a rich community out of which to consider what I was writing. And he just sort of endlessly, unfailingly supported me. Was he referring to the Sri Lankan community or a smaller community? Or what what was he referring to? He was referring, I think, to like the Tamil Sri Lankan diaspora and, and yeah. sort of like my rooting my work in that, which I had already kind of begun to do. And okay. I think there were people, including classmates of mine there, who, you know, really wanted to frame my work as small-minded in some way because that was what I was doing. And Jim was sort of like, no, what you're doing is big. And he encouraged everyone really also to write about big ideas. Like, I think, you know, there's a lot of, oh, you know, I like to write about ordinary life and the beauty of ordinary life. And Jim was into that. But he would also say, if you want to write a story about freedom, you should go do that. And that's that's also your material. That's also your your terrain. And you shouldn't be afraid to to do it. Right. That was a beautiful thing. And he would just sort of and I had been told before I came that actually by Suketu Manta, who has a new book of nonfiction out and who had also been very kind to me when I was an emerging writer. He was sort of like, go to Iowa and find Jim. <laughs> I was like, OK. And so kind of San, sans an acceptance letter. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was post might have been post the acceptance. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I moved to Iowa City and Suketu came through and he was like, here's the South Asian grocery store. Try to sign up for as many Jim McPherson classes as you can. Yeah. And I think the two of them were. So Jim supported a lot of writers in this very open hearted way. And I, I feel, feel like you could have shown up in his class and not been in the program and he wouldn't have given a shit. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> people did that. Yeah. People did that, right? Like, you know, he was also not a gatekeeper uh-huh. in the way that, you know, some other people like in sort of teaching in elite programs, et cetera, might be really like, you know, do you have your spot here? I had a poet in my workshop, actually, because there was a poet in my program, Shira Dents, who is a, a published poet now and a wonderful writer. And Shira wanted to take a fiction workshop, which was usually, I think, not 
not permitted, not the thing. And Jim was sort of like, oh, of course, if she's interested, that's great. So she'll be in class with us. And that just sort of changed the whole tenor of the conversation that we weren't out to kind of police each other out of things. Mm -hmm. And I think that especially given the kind of genre siloing that go on in a lot of places, like he was really ahead of he was ahead of his time in so many ways. Yeah, well, we we actually had a uh, we uh, our good friend Devin was one of the first, if not the first person at Sarah Lawrence to do both poetry and and fiction. So, yeah, that's that's really interesting to me. But also it it, it would it would be interesting to see someone try to audit a class of like how many people were in these workshops, like seven. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I think it was, you know, it must have been 10, 10 or under. And I mean, and also just like he was such an audacious writer. I when I was I was guest faculty at Iowa a couple years ago, and I gave my students one of the stories from his collection Elbow Room. And one of the writers just came and she was like, can we do that? And I was like, yeah, you can do that. Yeah. That, and that's the mark of something really great. That's like every, every writer that, you know, especially in my young twenties, when I was first coming across some of my favorite writers, I was just like, man, can you, you can do this? Like, yeah, that's, that's exactly the feeling. But wait, it sounded like you were about to say something. Sorry. I just remembered that he was also, it's important, I think, to remember that he was very funny and he was funny about race and topics that would normally be t- taboo or difficult for uh-huh. students to talk about. I remember he had this he had made up these cards that he would give out to people that called him like Biff McPherson, public intellectual. <laughs> That's hilarious. And it said like, you that- said I bullshit. That was his tagline. <laughs> is that is that a Back to the Future reference or is that like, what is that? <laughs> no idea. I thought the name Biff was funny. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> Interesting. I think that his, like, it was sort of like, you know, why I love country music, like a n- name that he thought no one would associate with him. Okay. Um, okay. Cool. <laughs> he had this eclectic imagination. I mean, eclectic taste. He loved, he loved John Ford Westerns and thought they were really key to understanding like the American psyche, whether you were white or black or whatever your race was. And, and he was really interested in Japanese culture he loved railroads. He, you know, he just, he just was, he, he, he knew as Sugi was saying how to connect with your work and he would find a thing that he was interested in that was intersecting with what you were doing. Yeah. In my case, I was writing about Alaska where I had been working on fishing boats and he started talking to me about James Fenimore Cooper. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> James Fenimore Cooper, you know, but he loved James Fenimore Cooper. So we it- talked about that, you know? Yeah, yeah, he sounds like uh, he had a very generous imagination. Uh, our our thesis advisor, David Hollander, whose book we're publishing second, actually, same, yeah, same, same deal. It's like you know he writes the most, he writes the darkest, like borderline nihilistic fiction that you like. You know, I mean, like I'm talking like like a maximalist version of like the elementary particles kind of shit. And like, and yet when you bring your stuff into him, it could be the most Pollyanna shit that you can imagine and like he's right there with you you know what i mean so that that spirit of just like curiosity and a desire to kind of just guide you towards what your vision is is like that that's the mark of a great teacher um so yeah i i really i really wish i got to meet james and and to be able to call him jim (laughs) uh he sounds like a really great guy and um i'm definitely i'm definitely gonna have to start reading a lot of his work but yeah speaking of teaching i'd like to if you guys are all right with it uh i'd like to move on to how um you're you're both teachers and you you're both out in the Midwest, correct? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so so that that's interesting to me especially considering the sort of political literary like espousal of your podcast and and in just in general, you know, 
what is it like with your students? I mean, I, I can imagine in the in the educational institution, it, it is itself liberal leaning, especially with the younger crowd. But I also don't know, are you guys are you guys teaching creative writing on both an undergraduate and graduate level? Or, you know, I guess, you know, that sounds like a motley of questions jammed into one. But um, <laughs> I'm just curious, like how all of this works together with what your vision is for your podcast and how it translates to teaching. Wit, do you want to... Oh, okay. You want me to go? All right. Well, first of all, we have two interns from my from the MFA program at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, where I teach. So, and I do teach on the graduate level, and then we also have an undergraduate creative writing program that I that I teach in as well as as do all of my my colleagues here. So, we've integrated directly into the curriculum in a sense that the students intern and help work with us on the podcast. And I'm actually going to teach a class on podcasting next spring. So yeah, I don't know if you knew that. We, had, you and I had talked about this, but they just put it on the schedule for me. So that's Whoa. great. You can be a guest lecturer. And this is the inaugural. This is the inaugural class. Like you're, you're kind of like the the, the startup for this. I have no fucking clue what I'm. Doing. <laughs> yeah. No idea. I mean, I just taught myself how to do this, Sugi, and I've just sort of done it. I assume without taking any classes, as I assume you did. You know, but you can go back and sort of retrace your steps, I guess, and try to figure out how, you know, you learn how to do one, learn how to do what, what one is doing. Yeah. I, oh, well, I, uh, I actually learned from Katie, which actually is a euphemism for Katie figuring everything out. And then me just getting on this mic and, and being me. <laughs> that sounds like a good setup. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's, it's mildly exploitative. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do the uh, I do the sound editing, and but we have all that's a whole different thing, like how we divide up the work on the podcast. But but for teaching, yeah, I and mean, the other thing that I notice is that as Sugi was saying, like she feels I I have met a lot of writers that she's friends with that I didn't know. She is a, a younger than I am, and so we know a sort of slightly different generation of writers, mm-hmm. and so that has expanded the people that I asked to read, you know, that I have reading that I'm that I'm have my students reading feels like you know it, it it's it's helped me think about how to talk to my students in a certain ways because I feel like we we have younger writers on the show and I think that helps yeah, I think it helps yeah. to have my students listen to the podcast at least them know what we're talking about because it's a way for midwestern students don't have access they don't go to literary parties you know they yeah that's the first thing i was thinking about it's like you get when when i say you guys are teaching in the midwest i'm not just thinking about like red states or anything i'm i'm thinking like we we've done podcast episodes about people being removed from new york or even like la or something like that you know and it must feel kind of disconnecting in a way and and, and whether that feeling is actual fact you know yeah I'm, I'm curious about how, how you've approached that I want them to to see like hey you can reach out and talk to writers like here here's Tayari Jones on our show talking about her books you know uh-huh. like you have through the faculty here you can get access as a Midwestern writer to whatever level of access you want to have in the literary world it's not impossible for you to be part of it Here's this podcast that happens. Technology is helping. Twitter helps you f- follow people who are who are who are in, in New York. It's it the the distance between New York and Kansas City where I live is much less than it was when I was growing up, and and you can learn about the literary world without having to be necessarily in New York. And I just feel like that's helpful. I don't know if, if that is true for you, Sugi. Well, I think Minneapolis has a bunch of publishers. You know, Gray Wolf, Coffee House, Milkweed. Oh, coffee House, Coffee yeah, House is like kind of more. I love Coffee House. Culture. 
Yeah, I mean, so you can actually go to literary parties here. Yeah, but I yeah. think that is, it's a set of publishers who are, you know, they're not the big five. They're publishers who have, you know, who are running on different models. But I think our students are really interested in learning about that and bringing that into the conversation on the podcast has been fun to kind of, for me to learn more about them and also for those publishers, I think, to get attention for the good work that they're doing. And rather than the sort of, um, like, I think the New York world, you know, I lived in New York, it was, it was fun, it was interesting, it was educational. And this is, yeah, this is a different, this is a different realm, but one that has, you know, those publishers are, are publishing great work. Sometimes they're publishing the work of our graduates. And I do also teach on the MFA and undergraduate level. So, Yeah. And I think that one of the things I very quickly realized was that the podcast enabled me to think through my answers to questions my students sometimes had. You know, I think people associate the Midwest with whiteness. And I think that that's not always accurate. But Mm -hmm. certainly, I know a lot of white writers here who are interested in kind of critiques of whiteness. And so that was the thing that was on my mind when we did our two episodes on whiteness, for example. Right. You know, and I think... But then I think also to kind of constantly remind people that there are people of color in the Midwest and one of them hosts this podcast every other week. No, I live in the Midwest and continue inexplicably to be a person. <laughs> so like, you know, when people are like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm managing in this state with like really good arts funding. And like I teach in a funded MFA program in an urban area. And for people to just know that that exists, I feel like does a little bit of work. So yeah, I do feel like, and I've had heard that the podcast is used in a lot of classrooms, which is not a thing that occurred to me at all as an outcome when we started doing it. I think it's used a fair amount as a teaching tool, which is really cool. So I hope that it's helping to raise new questions and help people to think through their ideas about how they want to write right now. Yeah. And, and that I, I kind of want to piggyback that back to the idea of how Wit said there's kind of an age gap between you guys, and this is the last thing um, I'll I'll bring up before uh, before bringing in your own work. I'm really curious as if there is a generational difference between you guys. Like, have you compared notes to see? And this is kind of a loose question because what is progress? But have you seen progress within? the you know over the years between when wits first started teaching and when you and and now like kind of comparing notes and saying okay what are these kids reading what are you know or or your grad students like the adults and like how do they view literature and kind of just diversity and and even integrating like maybe even like something like conservatism into literature or something like that i don't know a- any any thoughts on that is there a difference between when wit started and now when you guys are comparing notes i don't know when did you start teaching sugi i started teaching as a graduate student in 2003 but i started teaching at the mfa level in to the fall of 2009 so i've been teaching at the mfa level for about a decade I think yeah. our teaching time is not really all that different because I, I mean, I started teaching at UMKC in 2004. Mm, I okay, obviously I was a grad student. I graduated in like 94 from Iowa. I was a, and I taught there for a year. But before that, I was just an adjunct or, you know, a laborer, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wit, I was, wit, I was six when that happened. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I as much. 
We do sometimes uh, have these episodes where the generation gap, like we did a, an episode on, you know, what was it like to read books in 1997? And then it was like, let's start the episode with what we were both doing in 1997. And I was like, I was applying to college and thinking about the prom. And he was like, you were a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in my mind, when I asked that question, like, I guess, like, to to bring in something tangible um, out of the blue, it's like, I'm thinking about, you know, I read White Teeth when I was, you know, in like 2013 or something, right? But I'm like fit, sitting here wondering, like, what what was the effect of that when that came out? You know, like it must, and that was around, that was a little before 9/11, I think. Am, am, am I am I right about that? That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, and so especially, and it was still probably on people's minds when 9/11 happened, and obviously it has a lot to do with with like the Eastern influence in England, and like I'm just thinking, like, is there is there some sort of impact that you see that that book had at that time that translates to now like is that is that conversation stronger or it was or was that book so big at like was that conversation around that book even bigger than what's going on now because as a singular entity you know i think conversations wax and wane i think that you know white teeth was was incredibly popular it was also a book in which you know, she's writing across racial lines, which is now a much more controversial thing to do, oddly enough, right. than at the time that it came out. I mean, I exactly. had a book, The Huntsman came out in 2001. So, and I have a, a black character in that named Booker Short, who, and, and there's several black characters in that book. And that was really, it was not a major issue at the time that it, that it would be, I would think, today. So oddly enough, that those things kind of change. I think Zadie Smith is now seen as, Suki, correct me if you think I'm wrong about this, but I think people view her as being kind of more in the in, in sort of mainstream or even slightly conservative in the way that she thinks about being able to write across. She's definitely someone who says like, okay, you should be writing across racial lines. That is fine. It, it's She's written essays that were in defense of that painting that got in a ton of trouble in the Whitney Biennale remember this? The, yeah, the I know what you're talking about. She wrote a, I think she wrote a defense of the Emmett Till painting mm. by a white painter that was part of that conversation. And she came in on the sort of like back off the criticism side, which was and she got a lot of flack for that, I thought. Anyway, I think she's an interesting but I don't think you would have expected her to be in that particular position when that book was first coming out. Because the 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 world of writing was it is still and as we've talked about in the podcast many times, publishing is still very 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 white. But it is it was way even more so when that right. book was coming out, right? Right, and, right. And so that is a difference, I think. I don't know that I would talk about her as more conservative rather than I mean I don't know. Of course, I'm I'm biased in this regard, but I see that view as actually more progressive. And it okay. People, well, I do too. I do too. I'm, yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to chime in and I'm saying I'm really glad you guys said that because I totally agree. And and you know this is something that I would love to get into uh, on on your guys' podcast sometime. You know, because I think it's a little more geared towards your podcast. But I I totally agree. I think, but I also believe that there is a very distinct reason for the place that we're at now. You know. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's just growing pains. You know what I mean? It's like, I have black characters in my novel that just came out, but none of them are, are from their, none of, none of those characters come from my narrative point of view. You know what I mean? And, and I don't know if that was a pointed decision, you know, but subconsciously, I think maybe it was because I didn't think I deserved it. And I don't know if that's a generational thing. 
you know, like you said, like, you know, maybe if it was the year 2000, maybe I would have been completely fine with it. But already in my next book, I'm thinking about I, there's there's a, a, character, a black woman that I would like to write from her perspective, but I don't know if I'm allowed to at this point, you know? But yeah, that's going into a lot of, that's, that's going into a, a, a bigger conversation. So yeah, I want to bring in your guys' own work and yeah, uh, you know, we could, we could talk about it a little bit. I'd also be really pleased if you guys would want to read. I don't know uh, if we prepared you for that. Yeah, yeah I think, yeah, we can read. That would be awesome. Yeah, and you guys can give all your, you know, all the context you want, you know, all, all that's all that good stuff. I'd be happy to do it. I w- I'm just going to say real quick. I just Googled it real quick. Dana shoots was the artist yeah. who wrote that paint due to the painting that, uh, the Emmett Till. Zadie, yeah. Zadie Smith wrote about for Harper's. Interesting. I, I have to check that essay out. I, 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 I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. That's really interesting. I would just, I think Smith's take on it felt very McPherson esque to me. Ah, uh, okay. I liked it. I thought that yeah. it was good. I do think also that she started a lot of conversations. I think that, you know, I think of her and Jabulahiri as sort of, there was this moment where young women of color were writing sort of these in forms that people said that you, you know, you couldn't do or with voices that were more powerful than people expected. And they sort of set a set a standard for how the publishing industry could treat people like that. And I think paved the way for a lot of people in that regard. I mean, I remember loving that book so much. And it had all of those different covers. I don't know if you remember, like the different colors. And I borrowed it from someone and I loved it so much. I did something that I've never done with any other book, which is that I didn't return it. And then I couldn't. And then I, <laughs> I, I sent her I sent her a new copy, you know, like a couple of years later. I was like, I'm so sorry. It was totally evil to steal this book from you. But just I was so delighted. But I mean, she was also someone who was right. There was something very London about that book. And she was from she had gone to, I think, Cambridge and had this kind of elite background. But she was also very young yeah. when that book came out. And very so she was young. kind of this like blazing prodigy star. Yep. And then now she's become like, you know, some prodigies don't stick. And she clearly wasn't just a prodigy now. She's just a titan. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And to see like a young woman of color like set that kind of example was really was really kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was very profound at the time. Yeah, especially especially an English writer of color. Like you know, I think I think that was that must have been really interesting. But yeah, again, I I, I only got to read it in 2013, so I was kind of into the Twitter age already. You know, <laughs> well, I think, you know when I think of that book, actually, Wit has a couple of times on our podcast made the point that you know so many American writers now are writing about cities, and then if you're writing about a city, you're writing about a polyphonic experience. And Wit, every time you make that point, White Teeth is actually the book that I think of because mm. it seems like such a good example of what you're saying. You know, how could you write about it? it's like it's like why I hate and this is somewhat unfair of me because I've never seen it and have zero intention of doing so. But like, I'm never gonna watch Girls. Because it's like a depiction of a New York that has almost no people of color in it. You should never watch it because I'm going to tell you right now, I've seen all of it and I've never loved and hated a show so much at the same time. I'm it's, sure it has other redeeming qualities. I just don't. Yeah, care. it's HBO. So it's done very well. But like, yeah, it's like, yes, there it. It's everything you just said, and I just hated it. Like, every character is just so hateable. But anyway, <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, okay. Is, is there anything else you guys want to add before you move on to your own stuff? Or No. Yeah, okay. Yeah, let's do it. Wait, do you want me to... Because you're reading from your new book, so it seems like that might be the juicier one. Why don't, do you want me to go first, or do you want to go first? Whatever I don't think you should prefer. be describing anyone as more juicy than anyone else. But <laughs> if you go in whatever order you want to go in, is fine with me. There's no vampires in the room. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. I'll have to come up with another adjective than juicier. I am very much looking forward to hearing Whitney read from his new book that he's been working on. I'm also working on a book, but I am not reading from it 
So I'm reading from a story that I have in the new issue of Copper Nickel, which is edited by Wayne Miller, and and it's out of Denver. And the story, I started writing it for a conference in Edinburgh years ago. Um, a friend of mine Ooh. who's an anthropologist asked me to read there, and I didn't want to read from the novel I was working on, so I thought I would start a new story. And then I started the story, but I didn't finish it in time for the reading, so I did something very weird where I just kind of read to an audience of mostly social scientists who do fieldwork in Sri Lanka, and then they were kind enough to want to know what happened. So I finished the story, and it's called The Missing Are Considered Dead, and it's in, yeah, the fall issue of Copper Nickel, and it takes its title from something that the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka said in a speech in Sri Lanka a few years ago, which which I thought was super offensive. <laughs> he said the missing are considered dead. So Ooh. the story is from the point of view of a woman whose husband is missing and there's sort of certain bureaucratic niceties around, you know, after your family member is missing for a certain period of time, they are declared dead and then you can receive compensation for their loss. And so uh-huh. in this story, this woman is kind of, the clock is ticking. So... I will, I'm reading actually from the middle of the story and I'll just read for a couple of minutes. During the first year, I went to talk to the soldier and the colonel once a week to ask them what they had heard, if there was any news of my husband. I began in earnest. You know me, I said helplessly. You see me every day and you know me. I just want him back. If the army took him, I won't tell anyone. I don't have to tell anyone, but he is not with the militancy. He is just my son's father, and please, please, won't you tell me where he is? The colonel, who I think was not a bad man, and who was even farther from his village than the soldier was from his, stared at me and was silent. In the second year, when I had more work for less money than I could have dreamed possible, I went only once a month, even though every morning I woke up thinking my husband was next to me. Every once in a while, my neighbor would wander across the road and tell me that she had heard a rumor about where he was being held your husband. I would have talked to her for any length of time to hear that phrase, but after some time, even she stopped coming. Perhaps my loneliness embarrassed her. Other neighbors who had visited me when my husband was home ignored me, averting their eyes when they saw me on the street. And then at last, in the third year, my exchanges with the colonel became a formality. I asked him if there had been any progress and showed him copies of letters I had written to various authorities. But when he nodded absently, I understood that there might never be any news. The only people who smiled at me, who could stand to smile at me, were the soldier and his friends, their faces bright with sweat as they poured concrete for the new military hotel, which rose like a growing child behind the barrier wire in the place where some of our homes had been. Every month on the seventh day, I looked at the calendar and ticked the months down. I have told you that I was poor. By the end of the first year, my son had no shoes. By the end of the second, his clothes no longer fit him. By the last days of the third year, my boy resembled his father at the worst moments of his father's life, at least that life as I had seen it, when his time with the militants had worn him thin and impatient. My son was still a sweet-faced baby, still quiet, but every day he seemed to get smaller instead of bigger. He was only four. Around that time, the new headmaster who had come to the school began asking me to stay late. He was also friends with the soldiers and knew how I had come to work there. You understand what I'm saying. He had his own things he needed cleaned and done and taken care of. Mending, sewing, filing, odd tasks, chores that other people wouldn't have been willing to do. 
What he wanted was a young and efficient woman who wouldn't complain, who wouldn't say anything, who needed the money. During the day, my son went to a nursery run by the nuns, but in the evenings, they had their own services and did not take care of children. I had no one to watch my child then, perhaps because the only people who visited my house now were the soldiers, checking on me. Could I take my son with me? He was unobtrusive. Surely the headmaster wouldn't mind. And if he needed me to come somewhere that my son couldn't follow, my baby could wait quietly. He knew how to do that. I had just decided to bring my son along when the soldier stopped by for a cup of tea, as he sometimes did. I could never refuse him either. He too was starting to look older, his neck thicker like a man's neck, his arms and shoulders filled out by the hard construction work the army did. I gave him a cup of tea and the last biscuits I had and told him that I would have to leave soon to go back to work. He had just come to see my son, he said, gazing at Krishan, who was playing with the dog that lived on our lane. You're going to work again? The soldier asked, confused. It's evening time, isn't it? I'll watch him. I looked at the soldier, who even being a soldier was still a boy, and at my son, who would never be a militant like his father, and I didn't wish that either of those facts were different. I left my son with the soldier, who, unlike some of the others I had met, thought he was my friend, and walked to work, where the headmaster was waiting for me in his office. I'll stop there. Whew, that is, that's a lot. That was really great. Thank you, Sugi. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. I haven't read that story. So it's in the it's in the current copper nickel. Yeah, it's in the fall copper nickel. Um, cool. And yeah, I think I spent a lot of time sort of studying the effects of the war on women and children in Sri Lanka's north and east, where there were about a ninety thousand war widows at the end of the war, and it's a militarized area. And I think it's easy to kind of damn the military, where actually a lot of the soldiers were kind of economic conscripts who were quite far from home, but then also sort of inevitably the power balance between those sets of people is, I think, a challenge to live through on a daily basis. That's, uh, you know, something that Dembakov said that I, like, I, I always think about is that, like, the writer's job is to chase the main character up a tree and then once they're there, throw rocks at them. But, like, <laughs> to do that, like, compassionately is, like, you know... You know, Nabokov didn't always do, you know, he was, he was often satirical. So like, you know, that's very, very Nabokov quote, but at the same time, like, it's like, yeah, it's, you, you did that, but you did it with a tenderness that's uh, very, very hard to manage. And yeah, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to finish the rest of that story. Can can we find it only in print or online as well? I think eventually it might end up online at the moment. I think it's only in print. Okay. But I think most of the copper nickel stuff ends up online eventually. But yeah, it's a it's a great journal. If people want to subscribe and support it, I'll throw in a plug. I really love them. And I think they make a beautiful magazine. Okay, yeah, great. The, the copper nickel, everyone. Yeah, thank you so much. That was that was great. I subscribed. Sugi didn't <laughs> tell me that she had a story in it, though. So it's in my like to read pile. Kind there of- you go. <laughs> There you go. Okay, Wit, you're up. What are you going to okay, read from? Okay, so yeah, this is from a, a book that I I think that I'm done with, although I've got to send it to my agent to find out for sure. It's called The Crossroads. It's it's, it's mostly set in sort of like Kansas City's version of Williamsburg, which is a, not a thing that Kansas City had except over the last 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. There, it's a neighborhood. The Crossroads is sort of art neighborhood that like is it began as galleries that began with a bunch of white artists moving into a mostly Latinx neighborhood and sort of coexisting there pretty peacefully. But then, you know, the sort of 
normal gentrification story begins to happen. The complication of that gentrification story in this book is that the the two characters who I'm going to read about, Terrence Lawton and Kelvin Watson, who move in, are African-American. And so nobody knows really quite what to do with them. They're up, uh, upwardly mobile, sort of reasonably well-off professionals. Terrence is a writer and Kelvin's involved in politics. And I wanted to write a book that was like sort of upended the way that I'd written about race in Kansas City before, because I, the two previous books that I'd written were about the white power structures of the city. Mm-hmm. and how they operated and how they controlled things. But in the last 10 years and during the period of time that this novel set, you know, the mayor, the chief of police, the chancellor of the university, of the major university, my university, and and the representative for the Congress from this district were all African-American men. And so I wanted to write about that some. So anyway, I think that's basically all you need to know. But, but that Terrence and Kelvin are, are African-American and that they're the first African-American residents moving into this neighborhood is part of, the, part of what this scene's about. Okay. The Crossroads Neighborhood Group didn't invite Terrence Lawton and Kelvin Watson to their discussion of the Adelphi Project's condominium. The couple was new to the area, and some believe that, the only long, that only long-term stakeholders should participate, while others wanted to protect the new couple from divisiveness. Regardless of their reasons, everyone paused guiltily when the door of Wilfred Gomez's Los Alamos grocery and lunch dinged, and the Lawton-Watson family entered. Terrence in a natty v-neck sweater and a check shirt, and Kelvin, taller, more angular and muscular, with a chiseled goatee poking out over an Illinois University polo, extending his angular chin into a C. Welcome to the unofficial spring meeting of the Crossroads Neighborhood Group, said Sam Bonifacio. Dressed in his usual high-water khakis and tevas with white socks, Sam presided from the far end of the faux wood-paneled restaurant. Now, to go over our agenda, we have listed here recycling bin placement. We have birthdays for this month. It's my birthday, a voice said from the back. The Lawton Watson kid, KJ, scrambled forward, waving his Grover-like arms above his head. The residents in metal chairs at long white formica tables made a sound that equated to, oh, that's so sweet. Then Martha Tillman stood up, blinking and implacable. Don't try and distract us with birthdays and recycling, Sam, she said in a flat, firm voice. This condo is going to ruin the architectural balance of the neighborhood. It's an eyesore. I'm speaking for a lot of people when I say that one of the reasons we moved to the crossroads was that people respected the original historic architecture here. Are you? Sam asked. He blinked at the room of people as if going blind. Am I what? Martha asked. Speaking for a lot of people, Sam said, because lots of people in this neighborhood are going to benefit from this. Then how come they oppose it? Martha asked. Because people don't always know what benefits them, Sam shouted, rising on the balls of his tevas. They aren't educated as to what their self-interest really is. Comments like this were exactly what people had hoped to keep from the Lawton Watson's ears. Come on, guys, let's get along, Carrie Sullivan said, uncrossing her Uggs. We don't normally act this way, especially you, Sam. As a person of privilege, you know better than to tell less fortunate people what's in their best interest. Privilege? Sam bared his teeth and spoke the word as if he might bite it in half. Well, Carrie, since you and Martha own two of the most expensive homes in the crossroads, who are we discussing? By less fortunate, do you just mean Mexicans? People of color, Sam, someone said. Maybe you should ask Diana Bonta whether whether or not she gives a damn about architectural balance. She didn't inherit money like you, Martha, Sam said. She'd like property values to go up, which will happen when this condo goes in, so her mother can buy a house someplace else. Diana, tell him. Tell him what you told me just the other day. 
But Diana Bonta reacted to this attention by emitting a single yelp, oh, and stumbling from the room, tears in her eyes. The Crossroads was a liberal mix of longtime Latinx residents, artists, and by 2008 wealthy white professionals. They all knew no white man should make a 14-year-old brown girl cry. So they were surprised when Terrence Lawton's crisp woodwind tenor piped up in Sam's defense. So what's our leverage point, he asked, striding toward the front. He had soft, saggy bags beneath his eyes and a quizzical grin. Was he a lawyer, too? People searched their minds trying to remember what he did. If this condo's going in, like it or not, what can we get out of it as a neighborhood? The variances, Sam Bonifacio said. That's where we can press. The variances, the variances. Terrence chewed this over playfully, alternating the syllable emphasis until the word seemed to hold a secret meaning. I'm familiar with that term, Terrence said, but I have no idea what it means here. Sam scurried about the table where he laid out blueprints and pens, talking excitedly. The variances are changes in the local building code that have to be approved by the city, he explained. To build a condo the size they want, they're going to have to build closer to the sidewalk than the city allows. They may need to build higher. Exceptions may need to be made for sewer capacity. Terrence approached like a patient examining a, like a parent examining a student's art project, the tapered back of his sweater vest, the starched arms of his red and blue patterned shirt on display. I've done a little writing about real estate, he said. What you're talking about here is zoning. They've got a zoning issue. If we don't approve these variances to the zoning, they can still build the building, Sam said, just not the way they want. That's our leverage, Terrence said. It is if we want to use it. Terrence turned and made a not bad expression, pulling his lips down on either side of his limber face, raising his eyebrows. So we could ask the developer for some perks, or if we wanted to shoot big, I mean, I just moved in, but but there's a giant empty building just two blocks down the street from here. Mark Sullivan raised his hand. That used to be the Redemptorist High School. I know, Terrence said. I'm so old, I went there. My brother did too before they moved out south, Mark said. So, Terrence said, all we, we all got kids, or at least most of us do, even if everybody else is smart enough not to bring them to meetings. <laughs> he gestured toward the grocery door beyond which Kelvin and KJ could be heard shouting. Seems to me like if we asked Adelphi Projects to give us money for a school, open up that building, we'd be doing something that might make, make this neighborhood a better place. That's the end of that scene. Hmm. Yeah, that, uh, I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, that was. I think. I think it's really courageous. You're to 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 go into something that's so fraught, like with not just cultural but political and socioeconomic issues. You know, that's it. It almost felt overwhelming to listen to. You know, thinking about all. You know, because all of the angles you can come at it from, and like you know, you're thinking it from your characters' angles, and like at some points, it was it was hard. It, it was like it felt like it was told in third person omniscient. But because, you know, your your main characters were kind of like lurking at first. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, I mean, that, uh, that particular scene is sort of like told from the neighborhood's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it felt like. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. That was that was awesome. All that stuff is real. I mean, that condo is a real thing that did happen. Those conversations were did occur. I have a lot of friends who live up in that neighborhood. Uh huh. It was easy to translate it. In certain so ways. I, I hope you don't lose any friends over it. <laughs> I feel like that makes me think that we should do like an episode on how to translate bureaucracy into interesting scenes because you're so good at it. Yeah. Um, well, thanks. Like I, I never want to, I never want to go to a local meeting that's anything like the ones you write about. <laughs> yeah. super, 
but they're super interesting to read. And I know did, that, yeah, they do really do seem like the kinds of conversations that are going on around us all the time. Like in my neighborhood, like there's a, there's a sign battle going on in lawns about, you know, oh, uh, like it's over like zoning and there's these signs and people have arguments about it. But like, I never see anything like that in most fiction. Yeah. And it also, it also hit home for me just because obviously, I, I mean, we live in, in West Harlem, which is slowly, it's kind of like, it, it kind of feels like Brooklyn or like, you know, probably like pre 9-11, you know, it's like at that beginning phase, you know? And so there's some of that going on and you see these weird condos going up that just don't fit into the row homes and like brownstones at all. And, and also it just made me think, cause we're on the block association here and just the, the, just the petty hijinks that go down. Like, you know, I remember there was this one woman who ordered two drinks at the, at the block association meeting. And then she was so appalled at how, how they were priced that she refused to pay for them. And so, and so there was a big argument between a few members about how, <laughs> and then finally, uh, one of, one of my friends who lives on, on one fiftieth was just like, you know what? I'm paying for them. Let's just get the hell out of here. <laughs> you know? So yeah, it, it, it kind of felt, it almost felt like you had recorded one of these meetings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you both. Uh, those, those were both really great in such different ways. It's, it's really great to get a, a taste of, um, you know, different, two different styles of writing. So I'm excited to dig deeper into your guys' work. And, and also Jim McPherson's. I'm really excited about that, too. I'm, I'm glad that uh, we got to talk about him. So, yeah, is, is there anything else you guys want to say in terms of, like, you know, to, again, bring up, you know, do you want to repeat what, what you guys, uh, what, what, the, what the site is, again, just for the people who, who might want to find it? But it's, it's a very complicated URL. <laughs> well, I think we'd also be, we should also say congratulations to you yeah. on your new book, Emerald City, which I know just came out recently. And we'll be talking to you some about that on the Fiction Nonfiction podcast when you... And Katie, come to be on with us. Oh yeah, thank you so much. I yeah, I wasn't expecting that. That's that's awesome. That's really really nice to hear from you. But yeah, I'm ex- I'm excited to be on your podcast and uh, share some more of my thoughts about about that crossover between liter- literature and politics because I think what you guys are doing is really important. Uh yeah, so I will I will close it out. Unless is, is there anything else you guys want to want to bring up? No, I think like I guess maybe you can just say again that. To continue this crossover, listeners can find us at fiction slash non slash fiction just by searching in any podcast app or on iTunes and Stitcher and, and all of that sort of stuff. And we are on lithub.com under lithub radio. And we would love to hear any listener ideas or feedback for our show. And thank you so much for having us on your show. This has been really fun. Thank you guys for being on. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 35th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and featuring Whitney Terrell and Vivi Ganeshanathan of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay. This episode was cut by our podcast assistant, Dylan Thomas, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. Belly.